Will you please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Matthew chapter 5. Last week we began a series exploring the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, the Sermon on the Mount, preached by the Lord Jesus Christ and recorded by his follower, Matthew. And this morning we come to a section of it which is perhaps one of the most famous sections of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 11, verses 3 to 12, but we'll read from verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. The verses that I've read to you from verse 3 through to verse 12 are called the Beatitudes. They're a famous section of the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus talks to his people about a topsy-turvy kingdom and upside-down values and principles that can shape life and shape community healthily. How they affect us is deeply important, and understanding them is deeply important if we are to live faithfully for Jesus Christ today. You can read similar words in Luke chapter 6, and a little later on I'm going to read to you from Psalm 37 which could also be called a beatific psalm. The word beatitude means blessed. It comes from that repeated phrase, blessed are you if, blessed are you if, blessed are you if. I'll explain it to you in a moment or two. But how are we to read these few verses? Not only is the introduction to the rest of the teaching of Jesus, whether he preached it all at once or it was collected by Matthew on purpose, isn't really important. Are we to read them literally? If we are to read them literally, then we will see in them that they focus on the poor and the excluded and the weak. And they call us to remember God's priorities in the world. Read them again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Luke's version, it simply says hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, don't you, that there's a world of difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. 
For too long, we have lived as peacekeepers, trying to keep everybody happy. Peacemakers are those who build bridges for others to walk across. A church is not simply called to be a peacekeeper. A church is called to be a peacemaker, to find ways of helping people connect and stay connected. Families fall apart because people can't keep the peace. But if we are committed to building peace, to finding ways of discovering peace amongst others, it's a very different thing altogether. Are they to be seen as literal? Or are these beatitudes, these blessings, to be seen as spiritual parables, a metaphor for spiritual life and for growth? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning, as we explore them for a few minutes, that both matter, that they are both to be interpreted as literal and as metaphorical. I want to talk to you about a theological idea for a moment that's important, so don't get bored with me, okay? There are two ways of explaining a Bible text. Um, And the, 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 the science or the approach to explaining the Bible is called hermeneutics. It sounds like a German pop band, doesn't it? But it isn't really. And there are two ways of approaching it. One is exegesis. And the other is eisegesis. Now, I know that those words sound boring to you, but they are actually really very important. Exegesis is when you take what the text says and you allow it to speak out of itself into your context. So that's why the word ex is in there, like exit. It's a Greek phrase that means out of. Eisegesis is when you decide what you want the text to say and you force it to say that. And the Greek word eis means in. So you read into the text something that isn't there. If we as Christians use eisegesis when we read the Bible, then we're always going to justify our positions. We're always going to say that we are right. We're always going to prove everybody else wrong because we will find a way of defending our position, whatever the text says. That's not a good way to live as Christians. And it's certainly not a good way to read the Bible. We are supposed to read it and exegete it, to let it read us to let it challenge us and speak to us, it's a very important thing to do. So when we read the Bible, we have to first understand as best we can the meaning of the text for those who originally heard it, and then translate that into what that means for us today. We're not free to think up new meanings. There might be new, additional, and fresh understandings, but what the text originally meant, it must still mean. We just have to work on making sense of it. That's really important as you read the Bible. You will hear some duff sermons from people who make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And if you can learn how to read the Bible effectively for yourself, then you'll be able to challenge and think through some of the things that other people say when they're preaching. The famous um, Indian-English writer Rudyard Kipling once said this, There are six trusty men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and where and when and how and why and who. So when you read the Bible, ask what, where, when, why, how, who of every text. What's being said? How's it being spoken? Who's it being spoken to? Why did they say it? How does this relate to me? And where is the context that this touches down there and in my life? So when you do that with Matthew chapter 5, you'll discover something important. In verses 1 and 2, we are told Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to speak to them 
and taught them. So whoever's listening to this, it is first addressed, as I said last week, to Jesus' disciples. Who were they? Because they would understand poor in spirit. They would understand meek. They would understand peacemakers. They would understand persecution. They were men and women. Many of them were poor. Many of them were excluded. Many of them were rejected. Some of them were tax collectors for the Romans. And others were zealots who wanted to kick the Romans out. The closest equivalent that I could give you to that in Northern Ireland is some were loyalists and some were republicans. Can you imagine leading a group of people with that kind of mix? Some that were members of Sinn Féin and others that were members of the DUP and trying to get them to see eye to eye. You think getting the storm at assembly going again is hard. That's these people. So how they heard these words is important because it will help us to understand how these words are to be understood. And therefore, when they heard the word blessed are you, the Greek word is makarios, it means celebrate. It literally means be ecstatically happy. What did they understand that to mean? Be ecstatically happy when you're poor. Be ecstatically happy when you mourn. There are people here today mourning. Is it possible to be happy in the midst of mourning? Ecstatically happy? Be ecstatically happy when you are meek. Be ecstatically happy when you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Be ecstatically happy when you are merciful. Be ecstatically happy when you're pure in heart. Be ecstatically happy when you're trying to be a peacemaker. Be ecstatically happy when you're persecuted. If you allow those words to mean what they say on the page, you're bound to scratch your head a little and say, what is going on with this Jesus' teaching? You're supposed to scratch your head. Because what he presents to them and to us is an upside-down kingdom. Both the literal and the metaphorical meanings of this passage matter to you and to me and to every Christian church. The literal meaning matters because there should be a place for the poor and the excluded in every local church. I pray Dundonald doesn't become known as the white middle class church. I pray we are never ever seen to be the unionist party at prayer. I pray that there's always room here for men and women from this community. Whatever their background, wherever they're from, whoever they are, every local church is supposed to be a place where poor and excluded and isolated people are welcome. Can I ask you, therefore, to be careful of your language, to be careful of how you address certain issues, to be careful of how you conduct yourselves? I'm asking myself to do the same thing. Where do you live? Ballybean, Tully Carnet? Maybe you've traveled from further afield, from the Braniel. Maybe you've come over from Rathcool or Monkstown. Maybe you're from South Belfast or North Belfast or East Belfast or West Belfast. Maybe you're from Newton Ards or from Bangor or from Castle Ray or from Lisburn. Where are you from? And where are you from? Not just where do you live. Where are you from? I live in Newton Ards. I'm from Rathcool. I'm not ashamed of where I've come from. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of my background. I'm not ashamed of my family. With all of its intricacies and strangeness and oddness, I'm not ashamed of being who I am. 
And I want to be part of a community that always makes room for other people. Do you make room for other people? In your home, do we make room for them? In our hearts, do I? God always welcomes those who are rejected. He always welcomes those who are excluded by the religious. He always welcomes those that are in hunger and thirst for him, irrespective of their physical state. The physical state of someone doesn't show the spiritual life that is within them. Many years ago, my eldest brother, Colin, who died a couple of years ago, um, had been on a drinking binge. And he got up one morning after two and a half years of really having hit uh, the bottle very heavily. And he went to church. I'm not going to tell you where. He went to church. He walked in and he sat at the back. And one of the deacons came and sat on one side of them. And one of the deacons came and sat on the other side of him. And they said to him, do you mind leaving? He said, I do mind leaving. Yes. They said, we don't really want your sort here. And as a result, he never went to church again. Well, he did. He went once to hear me preaching in Balamina. But apart from that, he never went again. You see, that church sent a message to him. And they said to him, we don't want your sort here. We don't want people like you spoiling our gatherings, disrupting our thinking, forcing us to live outside the box. And I know that nobody in our church family wants to be a community like that. We want to welcome people. We want to be open to people. We want to find a way of embracing people, making space for them to grow. That's why the physical side of this matters. You see, I want to say something to you that isn't easy for us to hear. But God loves the poor. He loves the excluded. He cares about people that we tend to disregard. He's interested in them. And the Bible says something that is really very challenging. He isn't just interested in them. He takes their side. He will defend them when the wealthy and the powerful try to dismiss them. God is not neutral when it comes to the broken people in our society. God is on their side. And he asked us to be on their side too. But there's another way in which the physical, the real, the absolute side of this should be taken into consideration, I think. When you read words preparing for a sermon as a pastor, you can't do so without being aware of the current context that you find yourself in. I have sat this last week with Tommy Hanna and his family. And I have seen the most remarkably brave people. A few weeks ago, we saw it with um, Thomas Dixon and his family. We've seen it with Eddie Hawthorne and his family. We've seen it with Irene Robinson and her family. We may well see it again and again and again in the years that lie ahead. As the pastor, you sit beside people who have lost a loved one. You see their hearts breaking. And as you read through this, you realize just how important the literal meaning is. When you are mourning, God is your comfort. He understands what you're going through in a way that nobody else can. He loves to comfort those who are mourning. If you're here today and you feel like you're in a spiritual wilderness, like you are dry, like you are hungry for God, like you are desperate for another encounter with Him, He is here to meet with you. I think it is both encouraging and inspiring on a day like today to on one hand, God knew what we were going to be preaching on. Have a little baby 
full of life and possibility, being dedicated, and at the same time be praying for families who are mourning. Because our lives are like that, and God meets us where we are. And here's an important principle about these words. For you and for me, God doesn't wait to meet you until you get to where he wants you to be. God meets you where you are. Right in the middle of the mess. Right in the middle of the questions. Right in the middle of the uncertainties. Right in the middle of the fear. Right in the middle of the doubts and the anxieties. God doesn't wait until we're perfect to accept us. God comes to us and says, I want to help you right where you are. In a room of 160 or 170 people, there will be people that are happy. There'll be people that are sad. There'll be people that feel strong. There'll be people that feel weak. There'll be those of us that feel as if the world's on top of us and others that will feel as if we're on top of the world. God meets us where we are. And he gives us life and hope and grace and mercy. So these physical meanings really matter. But there's also a spiritual meaning here. As you read through these Beatitudes, they teach us of our absolute dependence on God. I want to say to you this morning that your growth is not determined simply by how long you've been a Christian. Your growth is determined by your spiritual hunger. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, God will fill you. If you yearn for him, he will reveal himself to you. If you're taking notes, write this down online or in the room. God always satisfies hungry people. It is possible to have been a Christian 60 years and have stopped growing 59 years ago. And it's possible to be a Christian one year and to outstrip people who have been Christians 50 years because your spiritual hunger is still alive. You still want to see people at church. You still want to see God move in your life and people one to him. A church isn't dictated as healthy or strong because there are a lot of people of attending it. We're blessed to see our numbers increasing week on week. To have this number of people here in the holiday weekend is remarkable. We've seen people coming every week to our church family and joining us. We are never strong simply because we're big. We are strong when we are hungry for God. When we are thirsting after him, yearning for more of him, wanting to discover more about him. And you're not strong simply because you always attend church. Your spiritual life is determined by your spiritual hunger. God's kingdom comes to those who look to him, who are looking for it. And this um, section of scripture is full of those promises. Now, I said something earlier on to you about Psalm 37. And I'd like you for a moment, if you can, to find it in your Bibles. It's in the Old Testament for those of you that aren't familiar with it. Because... I think that there's a real connection between what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and Psalm 37, which could be seen as a psalm full of beatitudes. It's a long psalm. And I'm going to read it with you and then highlight a few of the things in it for you. I'll give you a chance to find it. Don't fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they will soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed in his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Be delighted in him. Be blessed and happy in him. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. A blessing, a promise. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they will vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, and those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help him and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. It's like an extended version of the Beatitudes. This week I spoke to a man who had been going through a difficult time. And I said, would you like me to read a portion of scripture with you? And he said, yes, I'd like you to read Psalm 50 verse 15. It says, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and I will, glor I will be glorified through you. This man doesn't need to understand everything. He just needs to understand that God is there for him. And the Beatitudes tell us that God isn't close to those that always claim to be holy and righteous and pure. God is close to those who call on him. If you need him, he's here. If you're ready to acknowledge your need of him, he is here. Let me help you a little bit with these to see if you can get the physical and the spiritual meaning together. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. I think that means that poor people matter to God and he is on their side. But I also think that it needs, means when we feel our need of God, 
We will, we will be met by God's character and God's purposes. When we are ready to say we need him, he is ready to help us. The second beatitude said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's no greater comfort for you than this. Grief and pain may be a part of your life, but God knows and he's able to help you. That's the physical, literal meaning. I think the spiritual meaning of this is very simple. When we are truly sorry for our sin, when we repent of it, when we mourn it, God forgives us. He picks us up and gives us new life. The third beatitude, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. I think the literal meaning of that is still this, power will be given to those should have it, that should have it, not just to those who claim that they deserve it. Never assume that the politicians are the ones that are in pa- the powerful. Never assume that the people that control money and wealth and power are ultimately in control. God will one day put all things right. I think the spiritual meaning of being meek is to be teachable. If you are teachable, God will instruct you. He will guide you. If you're always open to learning new things, if you're willing to go further, he will teach you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Striving for justice in the world is a good thing. And we should keep doing it because eventually God wins. The spiritual meaning is obvious. When we are hungry for God, he satisfies us. He comes and he meets us and he gives us life and hope. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Compassion always evokes compassion. If we are compassionate to the people around us, compassion grows. I think the spiritual meaning of being merciful is being forgiving. If you are a forgiving person, you will encounter more and more forgiveness from other people. I wonder... If there's a man or a woman sitting here this morning or watching online, I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to pause at this point (coughs) this week. And you are hard as nails. You don't like your extended family. You cut yourself off from them. And as a result... Your life is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. I want to give you a gracious but an honest warning. Please hear me and do not be offended. If you live with a hard heart, you will die alone. And eventually, you will lose all of your friends. You may hold on to the one person that you're trying to control or to manipulate, but you will lose everything else and your heart will become as hard as an oak door. Don't let that happen. Don't allow yourself to shrivel up on the inside. Instead, become a person who is merciful. Learn the ability to forgive. Learn the ability to be merciful to others. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I think the reality is that we all have faults. Which one of us is perfect? When we're able to admit our faults, to say we need God's grace to help us to grow, something changes in us and we begin to reach our God-given potential. The spiritual meaning? 
The longing to remain holy and pure creates in us a growth cycle toward holiness, which is a beautiful thing to see. The seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The physical straightforward meaning is vital, particularly in a country like Northern Ireland, but not just here. I've ministered in Croatia, I've ministered in South Africa, I've ministered in Zimbabwe, I've ministered in Rwanda, I've ministered in um, so many different places where this is vital. The obvious is sometimes important to say, to be a peacemaker is to reflect God's heart. God connects people together that have been broken apart from each other. Don't go to a global setting for that first. How many families have been broken? How many relationships have been severed? How many children have been separated from their mums or their dads? How many husbands and wives have ended up, ended up hating each other? How many uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters have been ripped apart because nobody was willing to be a peacemaker? It would be ironic, wouldn't it, to be part of a church that was committed to a peacemaking attitude in our community that was full of families that were torn apart by resentment and unforgiveness. The spiritual sense of this, to become a peacemaker is to want others to know the grace and the forgiveness of God and to join him in his redemptive purposes so that other people can experience the same grace and life that we have. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you stand with the poor, when you stand with the excluded, then you will be treated like them. You'll experience something of what it feels like. If you've never done it, I encourage you to take a year to read the Bible and to read it as if you were an excluded person. You'll never read it the same way again. The spiritual reality is when we seek to live for God, we will be persecuted. We'll be laughed at. We'll be mocked. We'll be rejected. We'll be looked over for promotions. We'll be told that we're mad. We'll be marginalized and sidelined. I don't think there's ever been more ridicule aimed at Christians than there are is at the minute in the culture of Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. I think to be a Christian and alive in Europe today is to be part of a group of people that others think are nutters. Jesus told us that it would be so. Now, as I draw all of this to a close, I want to suggest something to you. I want to read to you the Beatitudes again. And then I'm going to read to you the version of them, the paraphrase of them in a, a, a Bible version called The Message. And here's my suggestion to you. I, I really think this is true, but you're free to disagree with me. God will tell you that I'm right. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I think there's such a thing as a, as a, as a, as a spirit. I'm going to call it. It's my language, so blame me if you don't like it. I think there's a spiritual spiral in life. I think all of us, whether we're Christians or not, doesn't matter who you are, every single person here, every single person watching online. I think there's a, for want of a better word, let me call it a spiritual staircase. And you're either going up it or down it. And I think in the Beatitudes, we are given a way of constantly growing 
circling what God is doing in our lives so that we become more and more like him. And I think many of us are on a spiritual staircase walking down and we don't know how to stop it. We're getting further and further and further away from God and we don't know what to do about it. I think in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, how to live well, God gives us a set of attitudes that will help us to reverse the spiral downwards and start a spiral upwards. And if you can capture them, they will always, always bring growth and life to your heart. So I'm going to tell you what they are, and then I'm going to see what God does with that as we approach communion. The beginning of our spiritual life is we reach an end of ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The message puts it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. My mother had this phrase all her life when she was really fed up with me, which was quite often. She'd look at me and she'd say, I'm at the end of my tether. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Some of you are saying, I heard it this morning when I got up. It's another way of saying, I'm at the end of my rope. How many of you are at the end of your rope? You've tried everything else. That can either be a dive bomb into disaster or a stepping stone into life. It depends what you do with it. When we are at the end of our rope, there is less of us and more of God and his rule. Step number one, we reach the end of ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not pure enough. I'm not kind enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not the kind of person that I want to be. That's a great place to start. Step two, we mourn our weakness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The message, you are blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. When you realize that the only thing you need is God, something changes in your heart. When you lose someone you love, when you lose your independence, when you lose your wealth, when you lose your position, when you lose your power, you can step down or you can step up. The spiritual staircase helps you to step up and you think, I've lost what I thought was dear, but I've discovered what is most dear. God and his grace and in his mercy and in his love and in his compassion is available to me to help me because I'm acknowledging my own frailty. I'm aware of my own weakness. And then we begin to realize we need to change. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Don't you see when you come to a place where you say, I need God and his grace and his mercy at work in my life. We open a treasure chest of possibility in our hearts. No matter how loving a couple can be, they don't have the resources to bring up a child well unless God is at the center. No matter how strong a marriage, no matter how caring a family, without God at the center, we're using finite things. But with God at the center of our lives, anything becomes possible. And once you've tasted him, you become hungry for him. Step four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The message, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. In the words of Psalm 37, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Once you've tasted him, once you've experienced him, once you have met God in his grace, once you have had a genuine encounter with God, nothing compares to it. It brings life and hope and possibility. Steps five and six, as we allow our hunger for God to grow, we become transformed and we begin to live our lives for him. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The message, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. Step seven, when you've experienced the grace and the mercy of God, you long for others to experience it too. You want them to enter into this Christian life. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of fighting or competing. That's when you discover who you really are and you're placing God's family. And step eight, you'll be laughed at and mocked and rejected for standing for genuine spiritual life and hope. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The message, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Now here's the thing, I said it was a spiral, so imagine for a moment that you've joined me on this journey. You've reached an end of yourself. You've mourned your own frailty and realized you've needed a savior. You feel your need of a change and you long for God to meet you. You hunger for him. And then he meets you and you are transformed and you become an agent of transformation. As a result of encountering him, you long for other people to know him. And as a result of that, you are persecuted and laughed at and mocked. And all the old nature comes out of you again and you start to react and you're back where you started. But you're a step up. And that spiritual cycle of growth starts again. And God peels another layer of your onion back. And then another layer, and then another layer, and then another layer. And you suddenly find yourself on a journey towards being a person that you never thought was possible. Because God is at work in your heart, stripping back your pride and taking away your spiritual apathy and giving you life. I wonder, do you want that life? Do you yearn for it? As we journey through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm inviting you to grow continually, to learn new depths of intimacy, to let God speak into your heart and life, and to let him feed you through bread and wine. Because this was all made possible because Christ did this. Christ went through persecution. Christ hungered for God's kingdom. Christ laid down his life. Christ made a bridge out of a Roman cross. Christ offers reconciliation and mercy and forgiveness to everyone who will ask him. And he is present now by the power of his spirit to bring a new start in your life and to help you grow. None of us needs to be spiritually stuck. It's only a matter of saying, God, I need your grace. And he will come and he will meet us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, would you come in your grace and in your mercy and meet with your people? Let your life and your hope flow into our hearts. Help each of us to assess our own spiritual condition this morning and acknowledge our need of you. 
comfort those who are mourning. Comfort Jane and Tommy and Roy and Tracy here today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give grace and life and courage to each person. For those who need to mend broken relationships in their families or in their communities or in their workplaces, give grace, I pray. Help us to meet with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thank you that there's always hope in Jesus Christ. Amen. Could those of you that are serving communion please come forward? I'm going to offer you bread and juice. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, then this table is for you. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to give you two alternatives. The first, which would be my preference, but I can't force you, is that you would enter into a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you do that, then take this bread and eat it. If you choose not to become a Christian or not to commit your life to Christ, then do not eat the bread. It's a table that is for those who know and love him. If you're a Christian and you're not walking with one another rightly, please determine to put that right. At the earliest opportunity, if, however, you refuse to lay down your hurt, if you are holding something against someone else, then do not eat this bread. Don't drink this wine. Make sure that your heart is right with Almighty God as much as it can be. And if your heart is right, then eat the bread and drink the wine. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he drank from it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. Some years later, the Apostle Paul said, let a man or a woman examine themselves that they eat not this bread and drink not this cup in an unworthy fashion. So as the bread is shared, please hold it and we'll eat it together as one body. And when the wine is served, please drink it immediately and place the little cup back into the container unless you're choosing to abstain from communion this morning. And may God meet with you as we share bread and wine together.